Hello and welcome to Eldritch Girl, weird gothic stuff and nonsense with me, CM Rosens. The theme tune is by Gemma Cartmill. I'm going to be serialising my novel The Crows, which is my first published novel, and uh, this week is going to be chapter one. So, content warning to follow. This is a weird gothic podcast, so there are going to be gothic horror tropes. Um, If you want to play gothic horror bingo at home, there is a gothic horror bingo template on my website. Feel free to download that, uh, play along, and that's at cmrosens.com. So content warnings for the crows as a whole. There's the historic murder of a child, uh, brutal ritual killing, um, so no paedophilia or sexual assault. Um, Domestic abuse, uh, physical, psychological and emotional and a toxic codependent family relationship um, between parents and children, uh, grandparents and grandchildren. Um, There's gore, mutilation, dismemberment, disembowelment, decapitation, exsanguination, torture and animal cruelty, which is historic or implied. Uh, One of the characters, Ricky Porter, is a soothsayer who reads entrails to see the future and pretty much just needs a content warning all of his own. There's implied consensual incest. There's supernatural horror, body horror, monster horror, threatened lobotomy by parasites, zombies and the abuse of zombies, claustrophobia, death, loss, bereavement, physical and mental health deterioration, head injuries. And one of the characters who does have a point of view is a relapsing alcoholic. So if you're okay with all of that, more or less, um, it's uh, that's what you've got to expect throughout the entire book. Um, I'll try and do um, content warnings per chapter. For the first chapter, I mean, for uh, well, for the whole book, just assume that the historic murder of a child is a central part um, of the book. So I'm not going to do constant content warnings for that. Um, I, I might not do uh, constant content warnings for the uh, abusive family relationships and domestic abuse, because, again, that's throughout the entire book. And that's kind of the whole main um, that that's one of the main themes. So um, I'm going to just do uh, content warnings per chapter of like some of the stuff that you might not be expecting in, in there. So the things like the clo- when the claustrophobia comes up. Um, you know, the, the threatened lobotomy by parasites, <laughs> give you a heads up for that one. Um, alcoholism. I mean, like, you know, I, I, I can, I can kind of, I think just be aware going forward that listener discretion is advised. Um, good luck. The Crows, part one, 11th to the 20th of April. Chapter one, the creepy old house in which Carrie Rickard has 33 days left to live. 11th of April You won't fit in there, Caroline. Her mother issued her warning in the ringing, decisive tones of a fait accompli, the culmination of her ten-minute diatribe against Carrie's decision. Any anxieties she'd felt at passing her quarter centenary faded away as her mother stripped her development back by ten years. Carrie stood in one of the smaller back bedrooms of her new, finally finished property, holding the phone away from her ear. Her lower lip had split from raking her teeth over it. Blood tanged on her tongue. I'm staying, Carrie repeated. Few people tried to stand up to Margaret Rickard, and fewer still succeeded. The teddy on top of Carrie's wardrobe looked on, glass eyes dusty and judgmental. A beat. You're not 
punishing yourself, are you, sweetheart? Cold prickles washed down her spine. For what? Her mother backtracked. No, nothing. It's just you put a lot on yourself. That's what I meant. Just hang up. Carrie bit back the expletive-filled outburst that would give her mother the moral high ground. From the moment she'd seen the ruin on a dull spring day like this, almost a year ago, she hadn't been able to get it out of her head. The dying lambent sunlight played across its broken windows, winking at her like a distress call, a secret signal. She couldn't explain it, but for the first time in two years she had felt seen. She hadn't wanted to go to that stupid housewarming anyway. Piddingdean was a tiny village in the back of beyond and she didn't even know Phil's cousins and Phil had been in one of his moods. Then, like a magic star, that glimmer of light pierced her world through the passenger window of a blazer blue saloon and changed everything. A week later, she'd taken the train on her own from Victoria to Pagamon Sea Parkway and walked for miles until she found it again. It had been waiting for her. Carrie knew in that moment, standing on the nettle-strewn avenue looking up at the collapsed porch and broken windows, that she wanted that house more than anything. It had stood for hundreds of years against all weathers and all comers, stripped of its iron and lead, broken but defiant. It was the spark that finally set her resolve on fire. If you can do that, she thought, then I can leave Phil. The rest was history. Even fully restored, Fairwood House was a lonely outpost, interrupting the sweep of agrarian melancholy around it. Huddling around its back lawns and curving up to the edges of Barrow Field were the trees of the public woodland called the Chase, once part of the Fairwood estate but now managed by the local council. The Sussex Weald lay above, the Chalkcliffe Coast below, the town of Pagamon Sea in between, a post-industrial twilight zone of soulless brutalism and seaside Victoriana. Fairwood was neither of these things, but rather an internal mess of architecture from previous centuries, dressed up in external Georgian symmetry. The main mass of the house was imperiously square, two shorter wings protruding on each side, symmetrical windows staring out in all directions. It had become known locally as the Crows, although no one could remember when. A murder of the big black birds nested in the trees behind the lawn, settling on the grass every day before taking to flight on some cue Carrie couldn't read, like soldiers in her own private army. They were no help today, providing no defence against her mother's relentless logic. Carrie stroked the window frame, running her fingers down the wood, looking out at the muddy disaster of the back lawns and the wishing well at the far corner. I love this house. I want a fresh start. I want... Well, why can't you sell it on and buy somewhere more sensible? I thought that was the plan. Your granddad would have loved to see it. He left you that money to do something wonderful with, and you have. You used to love going to all those National Trust homes with you, didn't... With him, didn't you? Her mother's voice misted, as it always did when she reminisced about Grandpa Jim, and a lump rose in Carrie's throat. In a strange way, this had all started nearly 50 years ago with another home, a modest council flat in central London that her grandparents had managed to buy. Without that flat, the housing bubble, who could have predicted that in 1973, and the staggering amount some banker had paid for it last year, she wouldn't be in this position, and her mum wouldn't be bloody light years away running a bar in the Costa del Sol. If anyone should understand about following your dreams, it should be her. It's not just that. I love this house, Mum. It's enormous, love. How can you afford to even heat it? What on earth is the point of all those rooms when it's just you? What about council tax? That must be extortionate. It would make a lovely bed and breakfast or a spa or something. 
I'm sure you'll find someone to sell it to who'll make the most of it and love it as much as you. Carrie didn't have an answer. Her mother was absolutely right. It wasn't practical to live alone in a seven-bedroom house nearly an hour's walk from the centre of the nearest town when you couldn't afford a car. She had no near neighbours, her job applications had all been unsuccessful, both her inheritance from her grandfather and her redundancy payment were all but gone, and she had nothing to keep her in Pagamon Sea whatsoever. Her mother, an expert at exploiting a hesitant pause, shoved her foot in the crack and forced open Carrie's defences with questions she already knew the answer to. Have you met someone there? Made any friends? Carrie contemplated lying, but it never did any good. Not yet. Are you applying for jobs in London? Why live there when you can live closer in? I can commute in easily. There are trains. I'm just worried you're running away from reality a little, that's all, sweetheart. I can see why you'd want to. What Phil did was awful. You don't even know, Carrie thought, rage building. You don't even know half of what he did. But that was not something she had the energy to get into over the phone. Leave it, Mum. I don't want to talk about it. She rolled her necklace pendant between her fingers, her parents' graduation gift, its smooth, oblong edges reminding her that her mother was trying, that she cared. No, all right, I'm not going to say any more. But I can see how you poured all your emotion and all your, your, your energy into rebuilding that creepy old house, and I'm worried that it's... Well, it's like... I Oh, I don't know what I mean. Her mother's voice faltered. I just think... I mean, I don't know, darling, it's getting a bit obsessive, and you won't fit in there. It's all just farmland and that awful run-down little seaside place. What are you going to do? Work in a tea shop with your education? Who are you going to meet on your level? Carrie made a disgusted noise. That was rich, coming from someone who'd grown up on a council estate in Hackney. I went on a singles night, she retorted, crossing to the window. I I met a graphic designer called Ian. Her pale reflection ghosted against the gloomy afternoon sky. As one night stands went, Ian had been a solid four out of ten, but at least he'd made her laugh. Not a promising start, but a start. She fiddled with her ponytail, teasing out the silver streaks in amongst the blonde, wondering if she should try dyeing it again. Phil had flown into a rage the last time, accused her of cheating on him, said it was like lipstick on a pig, kicked a hole in the bathroom door. After their final split, it had taken a month or so to walk past hair-dye boxes in a shop without her chest constricting in cold panic, let alone buy another one. Her mother sighed as if she could see the grey hairs through the network. Oh, sweetheart, well, good for you. It's great you're getting back out there. I don't want to sound... I just want what's best for you, that's all. Is that a cliché every parent ends up saying to their child, Carrie wondered? Does it come pre-downloaded at parenthood, playing on repeat? She stared out across her back lawn, a sloping, muddy expanse of dead grass, hemmed in by a thin length of wire where the walls had fallen in. That was the next job when she had the money, fixing up the lawns, the old 1920s greenhouse, the Victorian herb garden, the pretty little rockery. The builders had already broken open the boarded-up old well in the far corner, but the thickly wooded copse beyond the fence overshadowed it and gave Carrie the creeps. Caroline? Hello? You still there? Still here, Carrie said, wishing she wasn't. She thought she could see something in the trees, a flash of grey between the trunks. Someone walking a dog, perhaps, but the figure, if that's what it was, was standing still. Fat droplets scarred the window pane, a prelude to another April shower. It's not him, she soothed herself, trying to believe. It's not. He'd never wear grey. 
Well, look, why don't you try it for a couple of months, her mother said, sounding doubtful. I'm sure after a bit you'll see I'm right. You'll find a job soon and then you can just get it right to sell on. You'll make a nice profit on it, enough for a deposit on somewhere else. Okay, Mum, look, the builders are just leaving, so i better go and see them out. It was only a partial lie. They were finishing up, but wouldn't be gone for another half hour at least. Carrie turned from the window, hearing the clunk of tools being packed away. Love you. Talk later. Love you. Carrie hung up. Don't you worry, she said to the bedroom, stroking the pale blue wallpaper, enjoying the curves of the embossed peacocks on the feature wall. I'm not going anywhere. He watched the house from his usual vantage point under the trees, acid-scarred hands thrust into his pockets. The builders had done a decent job. She must be complete by now, a brickwork phoenix rising from her nest of decay. He could feel her getting stronger, waking up, seeing the world again through clear panes of unbroken glass. Soon it would just be her and him, like it ought to be, the new owner's surplus to requirements. A few months ago, he'd lit the bonfire up on the wheel under the blue moon, cut open some girl and spilled her steaming guts on the frost-hard ground to read his own future in the firelight. Thirty-three days left. He'd been waiting for this for years, nearly all his life. What was thirty-three more days? From tomorrow, only thirty-two. Ditchiels of excitement writhed in his chest. He considered breaking the owner's neck when it came to it, nice and quick, no need for a fuss. The how had been vague, but the omens indicated he would bear a share of the guilt regardless, so it might as well be on purpose. His fingers twitched. The newcomer was a city breed, but not quite what he'd expected. There was an underlying brittleness about her, a frailty that Fairwood usually exploited when she found it. He knew the house's little tricks. She always called out strongest of broken things. Not me, though. I'm the one and only. None broken about me. He shifted on the well-worn spot beneath his favourite tree, determined to believe his own assertion. She called to him because he was special. That was all. Anyway, weird bit fuller ad, as the Saxons said, things always go as they must and he was going to get everything he ever wanted. After sixty years, the protection that guarded against his bloodkin would be broken and he would be the sole master of the arcane artefact Fairwood protected. He giggled himself in his soft, childlike way. Everything would play out in the next few weeks, and all he had to do was let it happen. He could wait. While he waited, having a neighbour was a novelty that hadn't yet grown old, no matter how long he watched. She'd been sleeping underneath in the cellars or the old crypt, emerging bleary-eyed and hard-hatted in the mornings to wander around the rubble in builders' vans. His mother had always wanted a girl, heron slender, vixen light, and Ricky sometimes imagined his non-existent sister like this woman, only with a wide, straight porter nose and darker hair. He was gratified to find the neighbour was nothing like his imagined sibling in many other ways. Attachment made everything more difficult. Resentment, he chided himself, don't lie. He shook off the darker thoughts and moved closer to the wire fence, watching. Very soon, the builders would leave for the last time, and the new neighbour would be all alone. It started to rain over the chase, cold drops splashing onto his hood, the shower building up to a deluge.
As the mercurial might of April assaulted the house, Carrie made everyone a round of teas and coffees, amused that the older men finishing up in the kitchen were dragging it out. Normally, they couldn't wait to leave. Fred and Roy were the competent counterparts of Laurel and Hardy, and their apprentice Marty was a fresh-faced lad not long out of school. Fred called him McFly, but Marty, to both Fred and Carrie's horror, didn't get the reference. How long has this clock been like that? Marty demanded, finally noticing Carrie's joke from a week ago. The rescued grandfather clock didn't work, so she'd stuck the hands at two minutes to twelve in honour of his favourite Iron Maiden song after hearing it so often it had turned into an earworm. Marty refused to work in the house in silence. Too many noises sounded like whispers. Took him long enough, Roy remarked, grinning at his apprentice and accepting his tea with calloused hands. Who had the last day on the job? Fred did, Carrie said, the keeper of the sweepstake. You owe him a pint. Marty took this in good humour. Who did that? Carrie slid by with two more mugs, her smirk giving her away. The apprentice shook his head. Give over, Carrie. Roy's been leading you astray. He wouldn't dare, I'd tell his wife, Carrie retorted as Roy feigned a cuff across Marty's head. She left them to it and went to find the master carpenter finishing up his last job. Jolyn was hanging a reclaimed chapel door to seal off the attic stairs. He gave her a thumbs up as she approached with two mugs and accepted his with a grateful smile. Nearly done. Be out of your hair for good after this. What will you do then? Sell it on? Carrie bit back the urge to ask if he'd been speaking to her mother. She shook her head. I thought I'd stay. You sure? This house, it... Joe shook his head with an awkward smile. It changes people. I mean, that's what they say. Change is good, Carrie remarked, thinking that anything would be better than her current situation. No more sleeping in the crypt for you anyway, Joe laughed, sipping his Earl Grey. Keep the hard hat. Souvenir. Carrie allowed herself a smile. Thanks. She paused, sorry to see them go. It had taken her weeks to get into the swing of the on-site banter, and after getting to know them all a bit better, only Joe lived locally. The rest of them were subcontracted from Beck's Hill, and she was unlikely to bump into them again. I don't suppose you'll be sorry to see the back of us? The us slipped out before Carrie could stop herself. Joe looked at her strangely for a moment, but then his eyes slid back to the door and he gave the frame a pat as if to say he knew what she meant. Had a devil of a job getting locals to work on it, he admitted, scratching his head. This stretch of road has a bit of a reputation. He gave a short, awkward laugh. The Bermuda Triangle of Sussex, they call it. Yeah, the plumber said something like that. Why? Oh, it's it's just what they say. He didn't elaborate further on who they were, so Carrie assumed general folk knowledge. Drivers go missing, they don't find the car, nothing. They say a lot of shit like that around here. They say the crows is cursed, have you heard that? He rolled his eyes, but there was a hint of uncertainty in them. Bet you've heard all the stories by now, eh? Carrie didn't answer. Since moving to Pagamon Sea, she had heard it everywhere. Locals clammed up around her with an almost guilty silence, while most young professionals lived in the commuter's estate the other side of town. Even they only knew the place as that creepy old ruin. Carrie hated that the most. The mix of the dismissive and the ghoulish, and the way they looked at her afterwards, like an unwrapped mummy displayed for their amusement. Don't listen to them. The thought or was it a whisper, slid in and out of her head as she sipped her coffee. I already lost my job, my savings and my boyfriend, she muttered. I'll take my chances, thanks. Joe cocked an eyebrow at her. 
Your ex sounded like a right twat, he said. Not much of a loss there. Yeah, that one's more of a blessing. She cracked a reluctant smile. You got any single mates? Joe grinned. You're not that desperate, trust me. Carrie spluttered into her coffee. Listen to that. The rain picked up, lashing against the windows in the empty rooms, bouncing off the roof and echoing down through the attics. He swung the heavy door open and shut experimentally, muffling the tamping cloudburst. Perfect. Carrie wished she could summon more enthusiasm. It was perfect. The stained glass winked at her in the electric light. Yeah, thanks. I'll invoice you. Exactly what we said. Came in bang on budget for that last little bit. Told you we would. Makes up for going over on the structural changes. Carrie hid the sickness in her belly with a fake smile. The final payment would bring her bank balance to almost zero. Yeah, fine. How's the job hunting? Oh, you know, I've got a few interviews lined up. It's all pretty positive. She was on her 48th job application and third unsuccessful interview since being made redundant. Most employers seem to get no further than her address. Joe took a satisfied step backwards. That's us done. He packed up his toolbox and started off down the landing, the mug abandoned, half full. Been a pleasure. She followed slowly. Hey Joe, any more jobs going in town? Joe paused on the stairs. Maybe. My cousin wants a delivery driver, the Jade Emperor on Norman Way, best Chinese in town. You don't drive though, do you? Kench Foods were hiring too, but you need to take the bus out there. Carrie shook her head. She had already applied for two positions at Kench Foods and not even gotten an interview for the night shift on the factory floor. Super Price are always hiring. The supermarket on the high street, you know. Ship pay, but they're always looking for people. He frowned, one hand on the banisters. You okay, Carrie? She tightened her grip on the coffee mug. Yeah, of course, I'm fine. Just, you know, just asking. She attempted humour. I guess it's too late. The curse struck already. People are paying. As the thoughts slid into her head, Joe jerked his hand back. Ow! He stared at the banisters. Did you feel that? Static? Carrie asked. From wood? Joe gave it a worried glance. No, like... I don't know. Never mind. He ran his fingertips along the polished surface of the rail. Carrie, tell me if I'm overstepping here, but are you sure you're okay? She pursed her lips, not not knowing where to start. She didn't want to sandbag her carpenter with the chaos of her life. The lie slipped out, easy as an automated reply. Yeah, fine. He wasn't buying it, so she distracted him with a question, a trick her mother had taught her. What's your favourite creepy story about this place, she asked. You've never said. Joe laughed, embarrassed. Didn't want to scare off a good customer. He was only half joking. Dwelling on the past can get unhealthy round here. Anyway, Mags, the missus, works at the morgue. I get enough spooky stories at home. No harm in saying now, though, Carrie probed. Go on. He coughed. All right, there's one. He looked doubtful, but continued. There was this missing girl, I think in the 40s or 50s. Her mum was the cook here at the time. They didn't live in the house then. No one did, except for the mad old baronet and his nurse. And they lived in about three rooms. All the rest was shut up and rotting. Anyway, this little girl went missing. Last seen playing in the chase, the woods back there. He pointed over his shoulder in the vague direction of the public woodland that had once belonged to the Fairwood estate. There were search parties, all that, you know, but nothing. Local poachers got blamed, one family especially. He broke off, sucking his teeth. 
They found her when her mum tried to cook for the search party. Turns out this kid's been stuffed up the chimney in the kitchen. Ex... what's the word where you're drained of blood? Exsanguinated? That's the one. Weird marks on her, people said, cut into her arms. Gruesome shit. Carrie gasped. Seriously? Yeah. How long was she up there for? Joe shrugged. Dunno, probably not more than a few days. Some people say months, but I doubt that. Oh my god. Carrie shook her head. Wow. Yeah, never caught who did it. I mean, the town's got a lot of theories, rumours, you know. Some reckon it was old Sir Jack himself. That's what they say, anyway. Carrie raised her eyebrows. God, that got left out of the brochure. Joe laughed. Yeah, I bet. Lots of deaths in this house over the years. That's the most sensational one, I'd say. I think that's when people started saying the family was cursed, or the house was cursed, or their luck was cursed. You know, stuff like that. The Sylvants were a weird lot. Growing up, we used to... He stopped and corrected himself. Kids used to dare each other to break in here, nick something, break a window, you know? Rite of passage stuff. If you took something out, the curse couldn't get you, something like that. We'd make up all these kinds of stupid stories. Carrie folded her arms. You ever break a window? Joe snorted. Once, yeah. I was twelve. I wanted to fit in. Think I've done my penance now, though, don't you? I don't know, Carrie said, teasing. I think that's up to the house, not me. She thought back to things she had done to fit in around that age. Scraping her hair back and gelling it in styles that didn't suit her, discovering weed and vodka in the park and learning lessons the hard way, chickening out of shoplifting cider from Mr Rouse at the last minute and being punched in the stomach by Megan Haynes. She could easily imagine Joe, growing up in a not-so-diverse town, smashing the window of a derelict house because the other boys were doing it. In the hall, Fred, Marty and Roy finished rolling up the dust sheets, bickering about the local football team. Joe gave her a wry grin. Looks like we're off. Thanks again. Carrie put her mug on the stairs and wrapping her card and wrapped her cardigan closer around her. Marty opened the front door to a curtain of hammering rain. Blinking heck, boys. Reckon we should have brought an ark, not the van. See you, Carrie. Roy called up the stairs, a cigarette behind his ear. They let themselves out. The front door slammed with a suck of air through the hall, as if the crows had breathed a sigh of relief. We're alone. She looked down into the reception hall, listening to the rattle of the rain. The boards gave a contented creak as she shifted her weight. The crows was all she had, but then she was all it had, too. They each bore their life scars behind a restored veneer, keeping their losses to themselves. It had stood in various stages of its development through the Reformation, the English Civil War, and, comparatively more recently, the Blitz. Extended here, remodelled there, now a bigger entrance hall, now a new conservatory but always, Carrie imagined, fundamentally the same. The Tudor gallery on the first level had been converted into a wide landing, serving the Georgian extension on the back, comprised of additional guest rooms and the current kitchen, and it was one of these smaller bedrooms that Carrie had kitted out with the furniture of her London flat. I am yours, the crows had told her, louder and stronger with every improvement, every contractor, every cheque. It told her again now in the stillness as she took in the quiet majesty of the refurbished house. I am yours, and you are mine. A dull pain strove suddenly behind her eyes. Carrie hissed in pained breath, pressing her fingers to her forehead. The house gave a gentle creak as the pain eased. 
She shook herself out of her reverie. Early night, she announced to herself over the rain assaulting the masonry around her. That's what I need. She locked up the house, collected the mugs and dumped them in the kitchen sink, curled up in bed and streamed a film on her laptop. Things would get better, she promised herself. Just you wait, Carrie Rickard. Just you wait. Thank you for listening to Eldritch Girl. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, as usual, the theme tune for The Crows is by Gemma Cartmel, and the books have been illustrated by Thomas Brown. So if you want to read ahead, um, please do. You can buy the books uh, from Amazon or from any online book retailer. Um, you can also drop a tip in my Kofi jar um, at www.kofi dot com forward slash cm rosens thanks again for listening